0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them?
1: Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know,
1: so I decided, let's give them a call. Welcome Welcome to the the Calling calling History history podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Edgar Allan Poe. He'll be answering our call on September 18th, 1849, at the age of 40. About two weeks after this conversation, Poe disappears for three days, then randomly is found semi-conscious near a tavern in Baltimore. His situation was dire, and he was in desperate need of medical attention. He was also wearing someone else's clothes that were too small for him, and was unable to communicate what had happened. After being rushed to the hospital, he was said to have yelled the name... Reynolds, several times. Although he never recovered enough to explain what had happened to him, before he died four days later, his last words to the doctor were, Lord, help my poor soul. When I think of Edgar Allan Poe, I picture this dark man who wrote The Raven, once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary. I think of the man who wrote The Telltale Heart, a story where the narrator kills an old man and then buries him under the floor and then tries to explain why he's not crazy. Then I think of the story The Black Cat, where a man kills his wife and buries her in the walls of his basement. But Poe also wrote adventure stories about pirate treasure and invented the Sherlock Holmes-type detective story, which inspired Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to create, well, Sherlock Holmes. In fact, the highest award for mystery writers is called The Edgar, Although his writing is brilliant in every way, and known worldwide, he lived his adult life in poverty. While having this conversation, I expected a much drunker, darker Poe. But instead, I met a complex man who was good at nearly everything he did, except making money. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and competitive swimmers everywhere, I give you Edgar Allan Poe. Hello, is that you, Mr. Poe? Yes. Sir, thank you for taking the time to speak with me this evening. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm contacting you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting in a bar sharing a table with one another. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And Mr. Poe, your life... And your eventual death is a mystery to us. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions. But before I do, I understand that this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first?
0: I Well, Mr. Dean, if you are what you say you are, and you're not a devil or an angel, uh, but indeed a living human being, is that correct?
1: That is correct. But I'm not surprised that you would first accuse me of being somebody from beyond for sure.
0: Uh, Well, in that case, I believe that I am actually dreaming. And so there's nothing that I could truly trust out of this conversation. And so I don't know that I have any questions for you and any references to my death seem to be quite intriguing indeed. Mm.
1: You know, when you say that you might be dreaming, it's interesting because I read some of the works that you've done. I don't know where these came from. I don't know if these come from dreams. I don't know if they come from maybe sometimes just, I know that when I drink a little bit too much, I have some crazy thoughts too, or some wild thoughts that I wouldn't have had without the alcohol. But I will tell you this, you are not dreaming right now. This is actually real.
0: I believe that's exactly what a dream would tell me, so I will just assume that this is real inside of a dream, and we will proceed.
1: That sounds perfectly reasonable to me. I would expect nothing less. And let's proceed with the moment where it seems to me, and I may be wrong on this, but it seems to me that the moment that people knew who you were, where everybody knew who you were, was when The Raven was published. And would you say that was a pivotal moment in your writing career, where just suddenly you're a star and people know who you are? It is not incorrect
0: to say that. When I published The Raven, finally, it took over 10 years of rewriting. When I finally published it, it became famous across this nation and then eventually across the world in no time. But I had been quite a noted writer before that for poetry and for my prose, as well as well some literary criticisms along the way. So this was just the fame that had been coming for quite some time. It wasn't like the first thing that I ever wrote that people paid attention to.
1: Isn't that incredible how that works? Because when somebody has some sort of success, whether it is in, business or in writing or some form of athletics, from the outside it looks like, oh yeah, it's just, here they are, they just explode onto the stage and they're famous, they just had their big moment, and yet, you're saying that you worked on The Raven for 10 years? Yes,
0: any writer, any poet cares about their work, and it was very difficult to write. If you read The Raven, you surely read my essays about it and also about prose. And so in those, I detail out how I wrote the work and you start from the end and work your way back to the beginning, starting with the ideas that you want. And this takes time and every single word matters. Every single punctuation mark matters in poetry. You only have so many words to work with that are going to fit into your rhyming scheme. And my poem especially was very difficult to write. It's wrote in trochaic octometer. Are are you a poet?
1: No, I'm not. I do write a little bit, but I'm not a poet. Oh, so
0: you have to understand that this is a very difficult format to write in. It's not common, uh, even for other well-known poets. And so writing it in this format was showing off exactly how good I could write. And so that took quite a lot of planning to try to fit all of the ideas into it and the symbolism that I wanted and to get the overall final effect that I wanted. If I had finished it earlier, I could have actually gotten more money out of it, I think. But I published it when I could.
1: When you're talking about these essays that you've written about how you write, and you start from the end and then you work your way through the beginning, I'd like for you to explain that further for somebody maybe that is is hearing about your work for the first time. Tell me about this process of writing The Raven.
0: Oh, so we're going to talk about The Raven specifically in my poetry then, right? Not the prose.
1: Why don't you go either direction?
0: Well, for the poetry, I mean, that's how I wish to be known as a poet. That was always my plan. When I was young, I started writing poetry when I was just a child and wrote my first really long poem when I was only 14. And so I've been practicing for my entire life. And I loved the English poets. I was introduced to them as a child, introduced to their works. And Lord Byron and Percy Shelley are just amazingly inspiring for the artwork that they can produce. And so to write a poem, you have to not only be inspired by some idea or some feeling, which is the way that I wrote The Raven, which was to start with a feeling, start with a feeling of oppression, of unending memory, of what we might call madness, And then to start to construct around that idea, how do you convey that to a reader? And so as a poet, you're not only pulling words together, you're also pulling a a beat, a cadence together as well. And you're trying to find the right words to fit into that cadence. And uh, since you are familiar with my poem, and so many people are, uh, you can recognize that it's largely in three parts. There's sort of three large sections to it. And so in the first section, the narrator is exhausted. He's up in the middle of the night, and he's trying to fall asleep because he's so beset by grief, by memory. And that's the feeling that I wanted to bring across in the poem. And so in the first part of the poem, the words themselves are languid, and they're slow, and they have long vowel sounds. Slowly, and sorrowfully, and weary, and dreary. And those words make you feel, even though you may not realize it as you read it, it makes you feel the same feeling as the narrator, which is this slow, plodding feeling.
1: Is it almost like hypnotizing somebody?
0: Uh, mesmerism is a different format altogether. I mean, that's a science. I wrote about that too. But in a sense, in mesmerism, you are trying to get the subject to pay close attention to what the mesmerist is doing. And so in this case, I guess you could say that a poet is a type of mesmerist. And using the proper beats and the words, it gets the person to, in a sense, well, I guess, dream or perhaps be mesmerized by those words. And that's how you, as an artist talk to someone even if it's next to you as you're reading the poem to them in your home or in a public setting or I guess over the course of centuries.
1: So when you say that you start with a feeling, you look at all of your writings and there are all these different themes that you seem to tackle from resurrection, from death to the decay of the human body and and so If you're going to write, whether it's a short story or whether it's a poem, are you always starting in that place and saying, what I'm going to write now is about insanity, and then you start working from there?
0: In a sense. So – everything that you write for, well, I should say for a good writer, there's plenty of hacks out there. But for a good writer, you should have a unity and a single effect in what you're writing. And so in poetry or in short story formats as well, these are very tightly written. It's not like an essay. Essays are different. Science articles are different. Critical articles are different from this. But if you're writing in fiction, you're writing in poetry, then you should have a unity single effect of what you're trying to achieve through your reader. And if you start with that effect whether it be thrilling and exciting uh, uh, to tell some sort of adventure story or some sort of mystery to be solved or whether it be artistic along the lines of uh, human emotion like sorrowfulness or, or grim longing and so on. Those effects are what you should always be trying to achieve and you should excise out everything that's unnecessary to achieve that effect. So many other writers of this day have so many extra words to throw in because they think that more words equals... I don't know, a smarter writer or a more artistic writer? And that's not the case at all. It's very hard to write short works because you have to be so focused in your writing. And so that's how I try to treat all of these works. Again, separated out from my other writings.
1: One of the writers that I admire, he actually writes a lot of horror in our time. And he calls that process of cutting out the words, he calls it killing your babies. Oh. And... I thought you might appreciate that. That sounds appropriate for this conversation. But I guess that makes me wonder, if you work on The Raven for 10 years, and I don't know exactly how many words it is, but where did you start? How many words did it start with?
0: Well, the the process of writing The Raven, I started out with not so much the words, but again, it was the feeling. It was this feeling of oppression and of grief. And I came up with the word nevermore first. It was a lonesome word and a word with the proper number of syllables to be interesting to hear and the proper vowel sounds, not only to be able to be rhymed, but to have that long, slow feeling as you say it. Nevermore. It stretches out. It doesn't end in a consonant that would just stop. Nevermore should be forever. It should continue on long past the moment of when you stop saying it. So if you start with that feeling and then you arrive at that word, then you can work your way backwards. And the idea that I was working with was what can say that word but then interact with a human and it didn't make sense to have a human say it. I worked my way from there and worked into the idea of an animal and only few animals can actually speak and at first I thought of a parrot because parrots are well known to be able to speak but they didn't seem to fit the format that I was going for and the overall feeling and so I arrived at the idea of a raven and ravens can speak. They're very intelligent creatures but when they speak they're only repeating sounds and so to have the raven say Nevermore puts all of the meaning on the narrator or on you, the reader, to place meaning into that word. I never thought about that, but
1: it, as I'm thinking, you had said the word stop right before you said nevermore. And when you say stop, that's it, you're done. Mm-hmm. Stop. But when you say nevermore, I mean, if you don't say anything after that, it feels like you're still saying the word. It, it's interesting how people that really become masters of their crafts can take a single word like that. And make so much out of it. That's So where did Lenore come from? And what is Lenore about in that poem? Oh,
0: so the character of Lenore and the name of Lenore. This comes from a necessity of having a the narrator lose someone. So to explore the ideas of grief and of ideas of longing and the ideas of memory, that then, again, working her way backwards, what would cause these overwhelming feelings of grief in the narrator necessary to be able to tell this story? And the death of a beautiful woman that is told to you from the lips of the grieved lover is proper to be able to bring across these ideas. And so the idea of Lenore, first off for the name, I think... Women's names starting with L or having the L sound in them are absolutely beautiful. And they fit so well into so many formats, both prose and poetry. So Lenore and Eleanora and Eulalume and so on are all names that I've used multiple times in various formats to be able to fit them in to my stories and my poems. And so Lenore is a natural connection to something like the word forevermore evermore, and nothing more. It just fits really well. Uh, and so that idea of having the loss of a lover, of someone that is very close to the narrator, becomes the necessity of introducing into this feeling of the poem overall.
1: I'm going to step away from the Raven for a minute, and then I'm going to come back to it because you just gave me like 10 questions that I want to ask. But you had mentioned that there are a lot of hacks out there. (laughs) Who are some of these hacks? Because it appears to me that when it comes to other people writing, you have opinions, So who comes to mind as far as the hack?
0: (laughs) Oh, there are a great many hacks. Uh, The first one that would come to mind very quickly, and I read quite a lot of my contemporary writers because uh, the work that has sustained uh, most commonly is literary criticism. And so it's been my job on several literary journals to read the writings of my day and to uh, respond to them. Uh, Thomas Dunn English, I think, was not a very good writer.
1: Is he known in your day? Not to me. (laughs) Does that make you happy? (laughs) Ah, yes.
0: I have to say, I think that is quite appropriate. He thought that he was going to get one over on me. There are so many writers working today, and we often publish little criticisms of each other, and sometimes they're punning and they're funny, and sometimes they're very long. And so I criticized one of his works. I thought that it wasn't that well written. And then he disappeared for a while and then came back with a long novel, and uh, it was incredibly boring. And somewhere in that novel, he had introduced a character... Of a very popular, very talented, but very drunken poet. Uh, It was very clear exactly who he was writing about. I took that personally. And so to get back at him, I turned around and I wrote a short story, which was far more entertaining and far more interesting than his long novel that he took forever to write. And I wrote my story, The Cask of Amontillado. Uh, Are you familiar with it?
1: I've heard of it, but please keep going.
0: So in my story, uh, there's a character who's introduced who ends up not being very fortunate. I called him Fortunato. I always loved that joke. And he was an absolute fool who is uh, basically led to his death and given every opportunity to walk away from it if all he did was just pay attention for more than five minutes. And so at the beginning of that story, our narrator says, the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had endured as I best could, but when he ventured upon on insult, I vowed revenge. Uh, and so when Thomas Dunn English had insulted me, I got my revenge in literary format. And the fact that you've heard of my story and you've not heard about him at all <laughs> indicates that I was successful.
1: So what did he do? What was his reaction?
0: Oh, I'm not sure that he was even keen enough to notice the introduction of the character right off the bat, but others brought it to his attention. We haven't had much of a professional relationship and we haven't had any correspondences since that publication, Uh, but I'm sure he's doing
1: fine. So what was the thing about Fortunato? What about that was the direct shot? Just that he was a fool and he wasn't fortunate?
0: Well, you have to get the context of the story. So um, unfortunately, I know that at least some people, when they've read the story, thought that this was some sort of dig at a drunken character. And that's not the case at all. In the opening of the story, the narrator is telling you that basically the two characters, he and Fortunato are business associates. They're in the same business. Yeah, maybe this was too subtle for some readers. I'm not sure. But they're, they have the same business, that they're in Italy, and that they're both in the means of selling fine goods to uh, tourists, uh, to millionaires who would come to the city, and that uh, they've clearly had a somewhat friendly relationship. At least they know of each other, but that's been on the rocks for a while. And over time, there's apparently been insults uh, traded back and forth, as business competitors might do. But of course our narrator takes it to an extreme and he vows his revenge. And in it's called the cask of Amontillado. A cask is a very, very large barrel. It actually contains multiple barrels of wine. And so it's not for one person to drink. It's for business people to divide up and to sell off. And this would be a business venture. And so dangling this bait in front of Fortunato was not just that he was a drunkard or anything along those lines, it's that this was a business opportunity. And then within the confines of my story, very subtly, if you're paying attention to all the different layers in it, Fortunato is actually planning to probably in a sense steal this business opportunity away and sell the Amontillado off himself. So he's both greedy and a buffoon, and uh, he (laughs) insults our narrator, and he gets his comeuppance, but it's also indicated, if you're paying attention to the symbolism, that the narrator doesn't quite get away with it entirely either.
1: This is what's great about writers. The average person walks up to somebody and says, hey, you're a jerk, and I just want <laughs> you to know that. The other guy says, well, you're a jerk too, and then he punches him. But writers don't do that. They write a novel over a year to insult somebody, and then the next writer writes another story over the next year to return the insult. I mean, it's a big process arguing with writers, isn't it? I think that
0: writers probably are at least retiring enough to know that they're not going to win out in fisticuffs. And so we take our time a little bit more safely and trade our barbs in papers and journals and books.
1: see exactly what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to ask you a question right now. And when I ask, this is going to be super insulting. Oh. and But it's not meant to be insulting. And I'm assuming, based on the barbs that you have thrown critiquing people, that you've got a thick enough skin to take this. So if it's insulting, forgive me, because I respect you and your work tremendously. When he called you a drunken poet, aren't you a drunken poet? So since you bring up drink,
0: my struggles with drink are known. Yeah, even to other writers that I don't get along with. But I've been very honest about it. It's been a struggle. My older brother dealt with this problem. I was honest about it with my wife, Virginia, and the men that I worked with, too. And unfortunately, I've run into problems. I've lost a job because I showed up drunk. And it's been difficult. I did join the Sons of Temperance. I kept a promise. I did stop drinking for a while. And... At least when I was drinking, I wasn't doing any writing. And when I was writing, thankfully, I wasn't drinking. And so hopefully this lasts, and I'll be able to drink more responsibly, I guess, and be able to keep up my writing and try to keep up some sort of income.
1: Are you sober right now? Is that what you're saying? As
0: sober as one can be in the middle of a dream, it feels
1: sober. (laughs) Yes, you're right. Well, that I think that answers the question. So, okay, so let's go back to uh, the alcohol for a minute. Uh, there are a lot of people believe that it is the alcohol and the substance abuse, uh, things like laudanum, that give people that different mindset to go to these deep, dark places that you go to create these masterpieces that are known in our time by so many. Isn't the alcohol part of the creation? no. Alcohol prevents creation. Laudanum is a medicine, and
0: it should be used as a medicine. I used it as a medicine once, and it was a terrible feeling. Opium has been tied to poets and artists for long since before I was born. And so many people like to think that one might use some sort of assistance like that to endeavor dreams. And opium is different from alcohol, and I guess all of these things have their own effects. But at least when I'm writing... I'm not using those things. I'm being inspired by my own feelings or by the world around me, by God's creation, by the people around me. Uh, If I'm writing my stories, I'm being inspired by what I might see in the newspaper one day. Uh, If I'm drinking, I'm not inspired by anything other than to just keep drinking until I run out of money. The one time that I use laudanum, which is related to opium. I was sick for four days, and not like I could get any work done with that. I'm not going to speak for Percy Shelley or for Lord Byron. They have their own means of inspiring dreams. But for my work, I try to be as clear as I can be because there's only one way to write, and that's with a clear mind to understand exactly what you're doing and what you're trying to write. There's no other way to do it. It's just confusing to be assisted by some other format.
1: I actually agree with you completely. And I don't understand how these tortured artists write after drinking so much and using different substances to alter the way they think. I can never write like that. And so are you saying that your best works, like y- all of these were written when you were completely sober? Absolutely. Um, I, really?
0: I don't even know that you would say best works. I would say that all of my works, that Take time to write. Take time to consider. Take time to understand exactly what formats you're going to write in. No one is going to write the way that I write and be assisted or be bleary-eyed with alcohol. You do that after you're finished. You do that as a celebration. The men that I work with on the journals, after we were finished and sent off all of our manuscripts to the printers and we were satisfied that we had done the job that we were trying to do, that's when we went out to have a drink together. Sometimes that lasted until the morning and sometimes we forgot our hats and left those behind at the bar. But that's <laughs> when we went out together was to celebrate afterwards. You don't drink while you're working. I I, I did drink while I was working for a while, and that's how I lost the job. That's basically how you don't get
1: any work done. So when you say you drink to celebrate, I understand what you're saying. When you write that last word and you feel like you're done with something that you've written, I know that feeling when you get done. You really feel like you've done something that other people are not like willing to sit down and commit to. It's a great feeling. But when you went out and celebrated, you celebrated hard and celebrated long. It, it wasn't just about losing your hat were there not times where you went on long long drinking binges it would depend
0: on when you're talking about bear in mind that when i was a younger man and i was at west point or even when i was in college uh, the young men and i would we would have get togethers wonderful times together and we would drink uh, until we got very bleary eyed uh, passing out sometimes and it would be great fun i guess that's what you do when you're younger One time, though, I did tell someone who requested a bit of a biographical note about me for a collection of poetry that they were producing. It was a former colleague of mine, Reverend Griswold. He asked for something about my life. And so I told him that I had actually left America when I was a younger man, uh, intending to go to Greece to join the military there and ended up in uh, Russia by accident. But that's actually not true at all. I, I was actually using stories from my older brother because he was in the military and he did travel the world and i just thought it was entertaining to make this up for uh, griswold i think that he believed it and i think that he thought that i had done some sort of world tour while drunk uh, and he seemed to be quite scandalized by the idea but that was just a joke i did have days and times of drinking to excess that's completely true but again that wasn't really by choice uh, at least not outside of the time when i was a younger man and it was just
1: enjoyable i get the impression from some of the things that you've written about your work that you understand that you are not like everybody else and you don't think like everybody else and that this talent that you either have and or have cultivated it's very rare did you ever think when you were drinking and you were wasting that time when you could have been writing that you were stealing from yourself or from the public that, that, that needs your words? I think
0: what I was doing eventually was stealing time from my own family. I don't know what I would not have written or would have written had I not done something or done something. That's too much speculation on my part. But I can tell you that what I wasn't doing was spending time with the people that I loved and who loved me. It's rare to have someone in your life who actually cares about you and who wants to spend all their time with you, and you should give that person all the time that you could possibly give. And that's one of the reasons why I have tried to stop drinking and why I have tried to be more responsible in the time that I have now, because when you lose someone that you love dearly, there's a lot of regrets.
1: You have definitely had some loss in your life, that is for sure. If you were looking for material to write about death and grief, you have plenty of it. I'm going to table that for a minute, though. I want to come back to that in a minute. I don't even know how you got through some of the things that happened. I want to go back to The Raven for a minute. When you were talking about The Raven, you were saying that it was broken down into three parts, okay? So what exactly are the three parts?
0: Well, broadly speaking, in the poem, the three parts are as follows. In the first part, the narrator is experiencing grief, experiencing the loss of a loved one. And so he's trying to fall asleep. And for the people who haven't experienced this sort of grief and bless them that they haven't, they don't understand how exhausting grief is, how it keeps you up in the middle of the night with memories that you feel guilty for wanting to forget just long enough to fall asleep. And so in the first part of the poem, he's attempting to distract himself from these memories, like anyone would, by reading books in the middle of the night. And so he's exhausted and he's reading his books to get distracted and then to fall asleep. In the second part of the poem, he gets a distraction. A distraction shows up first at his door and then at his window. And the distraction is incredibly entertaining because it's incredibly unforeseen and truly unique. And so the second part of the poem picks up and it's more upbeat. And the words there are more staccato and they have more consonant sounds in them, tapping and quickly and rapping. And so in that second part of the poem, he's distracted from all the feelings he had in the first part. And he is almost happy with how he's feeling. And at the end of that second part of the poem, he's about to achieve exactly what he was trying to do. He's distracted, and so he's just nodding off. He's so distracted from the feelings of grief that he's about to fall asleep, and that was what he was trying to do in the first place. And just as he almost crosses into sleep, he has one more thought, and that thought is, she isn't here to experience this moment with him. And that leads into the third part of the poem, in which he is overwhelmed by the memories that come flooding back, and he experiences hallucinations caused by his exhaustion, by his grief, by his feelings pushing him deeper and deeper into what some people might call madness. And so he starts to ask one question over and over again, which is what anyone in the midst of loss would question, can I have this person back? Can I have her back in my life? Or will we meet again after death in Eden, in the distant Eden? And the only thing he can ask is the only other living thing in the room. And he knows exactly what answer he's going to get. It's going to be the same answer over and over again. And so all he's doing is scratching at that wound and opening it up even further. And so at the end of the third part of the poem, the final part, he's prostrate on the floor Under this crushing shadow of unending, unescapable memory.
1: Wow. So why the raven?
0: Why the raven as a symbol, you mean? Yes. Or how was I inspired to choose that particular symbol? Both. Oh. So... Symbolically, for The Raven, of course, it's dark, and it's dreary, and it's grim, and it's already related to death all throughout literary history. And so, that was a relatively easy choice, especially combined with the fact that it can speak, even though it may be unthinking in its speaking. As for inspiration, I generally would not talk about this because art should be universal. It should be applicable to everyone. And if I say to you that this symbol equals this thing in my life, then that symbol becomes mine and mine alone, and it's no longer something you can access. And so art, poetry, prose, should be personal. It should be yours. It should be everyone's. It should be something that is particular to everyone's life, that they can bring their own experiences to it. But, In this particular entrance, in the middle of a dream, I think that I can make an exception. And so I will say that, as I stated, I am a literary critic, and I reviewed a story by a writer who I think is a very good writer, and actually has turned out to be a wonderful colleague, uh, Charles Dickens. And Mr. Dickens wrote a story called Barnaby Rudge. And in that story, there's a character, a sailor, and the sailor has a pet raven. And the raven can speak. But Mr. Dickens, in his story, has the raven be a sort of comedic relief to the story by having sort of jokes. I felt that it was a very good idea as a character, but that it could maybe be used in some other way. As it happens, I was able to meet Mr. Dickens when he was touring here in America because he's very popular. And Did you know that he has a pet raven? Dickens does? Yes. he has. Does it speak? Yes, it does. It doesn't say nevermore, but he has a pet raven. It's named <laughs> Grip. And he talked nonstop about it. He was very inspired by it. Clearly, it inspired his story. And so I found that to be quite interesting and uh, seems to have led directly to my poem. I will admit, though, that some other writers may have noticed that. One of my colleagues who liked to write um, very short little joking poems about uh, well-known writers... Uh, after my my uh, poem became very famous uh, he published a very short poem let's see how does it go here comes Poe with his raven like Barnaby Rudge three-fifths of him genius two-fifths sheer fudge and so I think that the reference wasn't lost on him.
1: fantastic. <laughs> As you talk about the raven when we see a raven we see a black bird and it is certainly tied to a certain darkness when we see a raven but you add a personality to a raven because the raven can speak the raven can communicate and when you add that to the darkness that is a, a perfect placeholder for what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Well, let me disagree with you just a bit there. You have to bear in mind that uh, within the confines of the poem, the raven doesn't have a personality. The raven is simply trying to get out of the storm in the middle of the night and just happens to fly into this narrator's house and perches on a very symbolic bust of Pallas. Pallas Athena, the goddess of wisdom. There's a you know, there's a nice symbolism there. And so the raven is only going to say the same thing over and over again. He was just taught to say one word. Or he picked it up from some unhappy master for whom in Merciful Disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs won burden more, as I wrote. And so it's the narrator who is supplying all of the personality and all of the meaning to those words. He only says nevermore the exact same way over and over again. But to the narrator, that has meaning in the same way that my poems are brought to you for you to supply your own meaning
1: as well. One of your later poems is called Annabelle Lee. This seems to clearly be about your wife, Virginia, but why not use her name when you write that? Can you share your thoughts on this poem?
0: Oh, yes. You're familiar with Annabelle Lee? I'm actually quite interested by the fact that you're familiar with that poem since I haven't published it, Uh, at least not yet. So, since you are familiar with it, then, yes, the idea that, well, first off, it would be quite inappropriate to name a woman, in your poetry uh, that would focus far too much attention on her and so to provide a different name in poetry is common practice to compare someone to helen of troy uh, and then to use the name helen as a stand-in for an actual name would be a much more respectful way of recognizing a woman of a poem but for annabelle lee again the name annabelle lee works perfectly In so many different formats, it's slow and beautiful and languid, has those lovely long vowel sounds in them, along with that languid L, Annabelle Lee. And so to write a poem and to start, again, with this feeling of loss, but dedication and love, and then to work backwards and find a name that's going to have the right number of consonants is something, just the mechanics of poetry is how that would work. But for my wife, Virginia... We loved each other very much and her loss was devastating. And so I think that it's the work of a poet or I guess the work of any artist to take the worst parts of being human and to change them into something beautiful, to transmute them into gold, I guess, in a way that everyone can both identify with and love and find some sort of release and enjoy.
1: How did you meet your wife, Virginia? I understand that she's quite a bit younger than you.
0: I knew her mother through our family, and I visited them when I was visiting my brother, William, for some time, when I was on the outs with my foster father, John Allen, and before being a cadet at West Point. And then when I left West Point and decided that it was time to find my own career, it was just a good time for us to be together, and I was very much in love with her and very dedicated to her, and she was younger than me, and she was half my age. But I don't know if that was any sort of particular challenge at the time. My older cousin, Nielsen, wanted to take her in for a few years just to finish her education. But you have to remember that her mother, Maria, who moved in with us, who I supported, who I am currently supporting, Maria's widowed. And she can't have a business or do any sort of transactions business-wise uh, here in the country without a man in the family doing it for her. And she loves her daughter's. She loved her daughter at that time, and she wanted to make sure that she was provided for. And I was already known to the family. I mean, I'm just a cousin. And so when we were married, Maria was helping to ensure that her own daughter would be protected in the case of her death with so many different diseases flying around. And so that's what I did. I provided for them. I've been completely dedicated to her. After she passed away, I'm still supporting Maria at this time. Uh, And we had a wonderful relationship for as long as we could make it last.
1: Maria still lives with you?
0: Yes, she still lives with me. She has no one else in the family at this point. And I consider her my mother. I never had a mother. My own mother died when we were, I was only two years old and we children were orphaned and we were sent to live with three different families. And John Allen and his wife took me in. And Francis was a wonderful person. Uh, Francis Allen, I mean. I was born Edgar Poe, but I took on the name Allen out of my love for her. And she raised me as her own son. But even she was taken from me far too soon. She died and I didn't even get to make it home for her funeral. I got leave from the army just in time for her to be buried. And so when I met Virginia and Maria and they needed someone in their lives and Virginia was beautiful and dedicated to me and absolutely loved me as well. Maria was someone who could in a sense, be a mother that I never had. And I dedicated a poem to her, to Mother, to Maria. And I called Virginia Sissy as well. I mean, she was just as close to me as anyone could be.
1: It seems like you had a strong relationship with Virginia. But in our time, there's still quite a bit of controversy because she was so young when you married her. And of course, the fact that she was your cousin. How old was she when you got married?
0: Well... Since this is a dream, and I think that we're being honest, she was 13 when I was 26. And yes, that is younger than is common in this day to be married. But as I stated, she and her mother were in a particular distress at the time, and we were going to be married anyways.
1: So you're saying that it wasn't that big of a deal that she was 13. And obviously, you guys have a fantastic relationship. It sounded like you were very close, and it was a loving marriage. But 13 years old and a cousin, does nobody in your time have an issue with that or any concerns at all? Well,
0: cousin, absolutely not. I don't know exactly what has changed over the years, but that's not uncommon at all. It's well-known overseas with royals, nonetheless. Yeah. And we understand you're not going to marry brother and sister. You have a serious problem there. <laughs> but at least for cousins, it's not that problematic and quite common for many well-known people in america Uh, regarding her age yes she was young to be married i mean i felt like i was a child in my heart when i met her and so yes that did raise some difficulties within the family but we were going to be married no matter what and there was no reason to wait and for her mother for maria it was The easiest thing to be able to be sure that her daughter would be supported I I just came out of West Point I had great prospects ahead of me and I was the only man in the family that could provide some sort of income to them as well it's very limiting for widows to be able to do anything and she's trying to provide for her daughter so of course we got married and we became a family
1: did you have to falsify her age on marriage documents?
0: I wouldn't call it falsification. I would say that we uh, altered her age to make her just a little bit older on the marriage documents to cut down on any possible gossip from local wags. Uh, But no one seemed to have any sort of real problem with that.
1: Okay. All right. Let's talk about uh, West Point. You've mentioned this a couple times. It is difficult to me, considering what you've written and even the, the photos that we have of you, to see you as a soldier. That doesn't seem like a very natural fit to me. Did you enjoy being a soldier? How did all that come about?
0: I'm quite shocked you would say that. For the daguerreotypes that I've taken, I mean, I feel that I'm presenting myself as we were required to do so. My foster father, John Allen. So when he took me in upon the insistence of his wife, Frances, the woman who was a loving and caring human being, unlike himself, he uh, was forced, I guess... From his point of view, to raise me as his foster child, but Francis actually loved me, and his intention was that I would uh, eventually take over his business. He was a businessman, a trader in fine goods, and so to continue my education after it was necessary for me to leave the University of Virginia, I entered into first the army on my own, and I did fine in the army. I was there for a short time, but I rose in the ranks very quickly. I had over four hundred men under my command and very well respected. And I had an idea that I may continue on this as a career. My older brother was in the military as well, and he actually traveled the world. Our grandfather was in the war. And so when I left the military, after receiving a legal discharge, thanks to the help of John Allen, at least he did something good for me, entering into West Point was a natural career move for someone who might become an officer and it was difficult to get into West Point. It took a lot of recommendations to get into the school. It's a fine academy, fine academics as well and it took not only recommendations personally from Mr. Allen and some of his business associates who knew me but also from men that I had been with in the army as well who knew of my command abilities, who knew of how well I did in those positions and so I received multiple recommendations into West Point Point entered into the school and did wonderfully in my academics. There was another cadet uh, around the time that I was there who stated that he did more math in the first year at his time in West Point, that he'd done three years at university. We were held to an incredibly high standard, and I did excellent in all of that, and especially well in math, and in engineering, and in understanding transportation, and the very fast developments of science that we have in the day, too. And so I made good friends that lasted for my entire life as well. But I knew that Mr. Allen, my foster father, was slowly cutting me out of the family after he had remarried the woman that he was cheating on his wife with, and the one that he had three, three illegitimate children with that he was providing for their education out of his money and none for my own. He is an incredibly wealthy man. I knew that he was cutting me out of the family. And so he wasn't going to support me as was necessary while I was at school. And so I neglected some of my required duties from West Point as a choice so that I could finally leave and make my own career in the world. And so I was dismissed and went to visit my brother at
1: that time. Why is John Allen, and John Allen, my understanding is that your parents died at a young age, and then John and Francis Allen took you on as their son. What does he have against you? What is his problem with you?
0: That's a very good question, considering how he's treated me over the years. Now, bear this in mind. So when my mother was dying, she was an incredibly well-known actress, and at that time, as, as part of her work, as part of acting, she was in Richmond. And so it was in the papers about her impending death and about the children that she was going to orphan, and there was no other recourse for orphans, and so our grandparents took in my brother, but they were only able to support one child, and Frances Allen, thankfully, is the one who stepped up and encouraged, or forced... Her husband to take me in. And she was key in making sure that my sister was not destitute, also, that Rosalie had a family. And she got Rosalie taken in, also. And so when Francis took me on as her own son. She had no children of her own, and she adored me. And at first, John Allen was wonderful, and I called him my own father. I called him Pa. And he took us overseas as part of his work. We went to Scotland. We went to England. I was given an excellent education. And I think that he was still proud of me at that time because he... Placed every expectation on a child, because children are just mostly blank slates. You can put anything on them, and it seems like they'll probably grow into it. But when we came Mm -hmm. back here to the States, and I continued my education, I told him how much I loved poetry and writing, and that that's where I felt my heart was, being an artist, not being a businessman like him. And we had quite a number of rows over it, and had a major falling out around some of my gambling debts at uh, the university, and he refused to help cover those, despite the fact that he had many thousands of dollars, and he could have easily done so, just like all the other uh, boys that were there from all of the rich families from the South. He easily could have covered these things, but he refused to cover those debts, and that's why I never finished my education at the university. After his wife died, he treated me a little bit better, and we had some improvements. But then years later, when I had a few more, successes from my writing and i could actually come back to him write back to him and not ask him for money not ask him for another loan but actually come back to him and tell him that i could stand on my own two feet and that i could come to him as a success and try to have some sort of familial relationship with him he refused and he cut me out of the family entirely when he was on his deathbed I had to come to his manor home, push my way past his new wife to just try to talk to him. And he nearly threw his walking stick at me and threatened to kill me if I came any closer. And then when he finally shuffled off this mortal coil, he left so much money to those three illegitimate children of his. He had eight manor homes, eight, eight manor homes. And he left me nothing. The boy that he raised as his own son, that he treated as Virginia aristocracy to get me into school, to carry on his name that I was willing to take on, he started to treat me like a bastard. And then he just left nothing. And so I had no means of support, unlike all the other writers nowadays. All these other writers have other means of support. Some of them have family support. Some of them work in universities. Some of them have government jobs. But I'm trying to make my own living as an artist, as a writer, and it is very difficult.
1: Do you think that maybe the reason that the two of you struggled to get along was just because he couldn't relate to you at all? I mean, a man that has a mind for business like that is the opposite of a person who's creative like you. Do you think it's just that it's that simple?
0: There's a certain logic there. He definitely considered that business was how the world works. And even when I would ask him for the smallest of loans, just to cover books uh, at school or some of my clothing, he would keep careful documents charting out exactly what he loaned me uh, and any potential interest from those loans as well. He was such a pity pincher. So I can see (laughs) the logic there, and he expected that I would, I guess, take over his business, but it was clear, as any child is, they're their own person. They grow into their own person, and you can't control that, and it was just an excuse. If I was never his natural son, then I guess that his natural children, born in wedlock or not born in wedlock, that they would grow up better than I would, and so he focused all of his attention on them because he knew exactly once Francis' health started to decline, he basically set up his little shadow family in the background, ready to take over as soon as she was buried.
1: Did any of these kids grow up to be more like him, interested in taking over the business, interested in business in general, where maybe he would have favored them?
0: After his death and after our relationship had ended, not in that order. I didn't keep up with any of that side of the family, so I'm assuming that they went ahead and took over, considering they inherited all of his wealth and all of his manor homes. They had to keep it up somehow. So they probably, in death, made him quite proud.
1: One thing about writers is that uh, writers write what they know. And there are certain things that happen in your life that stick with you. And when you were talking about these eight manor homes, you said that strongly. He has eight manor homes. Like, that is a big deal. And then I think of your story, and I'm th- it's the one with the... Eight rooms and the clock. Is that the murder of Rue Morgue? Am I thinking of the right one? No,
0: you're thinking of the Mask of the Red Death. That's the one in which Prince Prospero has a very large home or castle with multiple rooms all decorated in a different color. And he learns that wealth and prosperity won't save you in the end.
1: And were there not, in this building that he has, monastery, castle, whatever it was, were there not eight rooms?
0: No, actually, there were seven that I listed in the story, which I know that at least some critics tie into an idea of the seven ages of man. More symbolism for you to work on there. But no. I will say, though, that in being brought up by John Allen in the South at that time, I mean, we were aristocracy. We were rich. He was rich. I mean, to be in that family was to have access to everything. And Mm. when I was sent off to university, I was part of the Southern aristocracy there. All the boys that were there, our plans were that we would receive this education and then be finished as men to go back out into society and take over, either in business or in government. That's the whole point of higher education, is to finish a man and to get them ready to take over. And the prospects that were open to me were anything that I wanted. But if you take all that away, all of a sudden you're on the outside of that and you see society completely differently. And if we want to go down the pathway of what might inspire a writer, the idea of once being respected and wealthy and losing all of that, uh, that shows up in my writing a couple of times. We were talking about Cask of Amontillado Mm. and Montresor, the narrator, talks about having a well-known family, but his manor house is empty. He only has a few servants left, and he gets insulted multiple times by Fortunato, and Fortunato does this little side insult in which he says, I forget your arms, you know, meaning like a coat of arms, quite common, at least in England. And if someone is going to forget his coat of arms, that means that it was well-known at one time But now the family has depleted to the point where everyone has forgotten it. And you mentioned the murders in the Rue Morgue. Uh, The main character in that, Auguste Dupin, he's also a genius and a very intelligent and well-read man with great powers of observation, who also was cut out from his family, who should have been wealthy, but he has no money and he's forced to share a flat, an apartment, with the narrator. That's why they're even together in the story, is just due to monetary necessity. And he's also on the outside of society, too.
1: Let's talk about the murders of... uh, The Murders of In the rumor. This is an important book in our time, because a lot of your stories are about death and... They're grim and they're grief. And The Murders of Rue Morgue is like a detective story, a police
0: story, isn't it? Well, I would call it a ratiocination story. I assume that in detecting, that's how you get the term detective. But yes, that's exactly what it was. I don't understand why you keep saying that my stories are so grim. I think they're quite entertaining and they're quite funny in parts as well. But in that story in particular, it's adventurous. It's not only a story about crime and about a very violent a very gory murder, but it's one where the reader is taken on this journey and helps to see how this character, Auguste Dupin, is able to solve the crime using his powers of observation and his powers of deduction, and, and it was very, very popular. This wasn't considered to be any sort of depressing story. I even had to write sequels to it, which I'm sure you are familiar with. The case of Marie Roger and the Pearl letter. And the case mm-hmm. Marie Roger was actually based on a, an actual crime that happened in New York City. I just took it and placed it in Paris for the necessities of my story. And in each of those stories, you have a main character who is solving crimes using his powers of observation and of his logical abilities too. And many people are talking about that this is an entirely new type of story and one that they've never read before. And it's very adventurous, not grim at all.
1: When you hear Poe talk about the murders in the Rue Morgue, it's hard to believe that this method of storytelling didn't exist until he created it. No one had used this method of a detective using his skills and deductive reasoning to solve crimes. The stories were very well received, and of course, after borrowing his idea, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle sold 60 million copies using this formula. In the next episode, we'll talk about several of the stories that Poe wrote, and how he finds comedy in the most gruesome tales. He'll also share the hilarious, vicious critiques of his fellow writers. I'm glad you're enjoying this podcast. If you haven't yet, subscribe now and we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast with part two of Edgar Allan Poe.